Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Matthew here from Audio Judo. It's been a difficult couple of weeks. The nation, amidst the chaos and confusion wrought by the pandemic and inflamed by the wrongful death of one of its own, is in flux right now, indeterminate and unpredictable. Millions of people are being asked to look within and outside of themselves at the systematic inequality and determine how to dismantle it with their own hands. It's uncomfortable, it's raw, and it's long overdue. We realize that we aren't the most important voices in the room right now, and that it is important to be cognizant of how we lift up and emphasize those who need to be heard. We also recognize that change can only be truly effective if it occurs in as many people as possible and be as all-encompassing as it can be. The subject of today's episode, the Beastie Boys, have had a long history of fighting hate and prejudice both within their music and within their communities. Even so, They made prejudiced decisions and comments early on in their work that they worked long and hard to atone for. It is this self-reflection that we need to take heed of and internalize to move forward as a country and begin to bring a fair, equal playing field to everyone, both in our direct communities, in our nation, and on this planet we all call home. We fully support the Black Lives Matter movement, and we hope you'll join us in these discussions going forward. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Audio Judo. Uh, I'm Matthew. I'm Kyle. And we're uh, here to talk about uh, some more music. Hope everyone's doing all right out there. Staying safe, staying indoors right now, hopefully. I hope. Again, I haven't looked at the calendar, so I'm unclear as when this would probably be airing. Um, hopefully, when you're hearing this, everything is up and running again. Oh, that'd be nice. Been working diligently to get some audio judo uh, merchandise available oh, cool. on our website. Uh, t-shirts, magnets, stickers, coffee mugs. Ooh. Uh, so if you're interested when you're listening to this for the first time, hop on over to audiojudo.com. Hopefully there's a link there for some merch. Ooh, sweet. I uh, got some really great feedback on our Matthew and the Atlas episode. Ooh. So if you are new around here, please give that a listen. 
And I love that. Uh, I love that people are given uh, new music a listen, experimenting. Uh, this is the ultimate goal of the show. Yeah. Our title is a podcast of music discovery. And when it works, it's a amazing thing. And I'm very grateful that uh, people are, are trying some new stuff out. Even my wife listened to that record. She's Ooh. like, well, it's interesting. I, I'm like, I've been listening to it for six years, honey. <laughs> She's like, I don't remember hearing it. I'm like, I literally listened to it with you around all the time. <laughs> She's like, mm, doesn't ring any bells. I'm like, all right. Cool. None, none of this sounds familiar. Um, so, Kyle, I have a question for you. Oh, crap. What's the time? Uh, I believe it's time to get ill. Uh, I said, what's the time? It, it, and I replied that it's time to get ill. I see. Uh, I wonder, do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, I think we're talking about the Beastie Boys license to ill. Yeah. Yeah, boy. <laughs> oh, poor Randy. Uh, sorry, oh, Randy. I'm sorry, Randy. That is correct. Sweet. Randy, uh, one of Randy's favorite albums is uh, Paul's Boutique, which is the follow-up to this album. And I specifically looked right at him in the eyes when I said, we're going to do License to Ill. <laughs> and then I kept my eyes really wide. He was just like, no. no. <laughs> so yes, Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys, the debut studio album. The debut. From uh, the three boys from New York. Yeah. And it's... Uh, I picked this one for a couple of different reasons because it's probably, Do tell. probably not. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, more familiar Beastie Boys albums than this first one. But uh, first of all, it is their first full length studio album. This was kind of uh, and we'll get into their history in a minute, but it was kind of a, a change for them. And it was kind of a, a very different sound than anything they had done before while they were kind of forming and 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 growing. The second reason I wanted to talk about this album is because of uh, sampling. It's a something that at the time was so fairly new. I mean, people had done it before. The Beatles mm -hmm. had done it. The uh, Beach Boys had done it. Uh, you know, it had existed before and, you know, with tape looping and uh, sampling and things. But this was kind of the era where it exploded. It started to become something that was much more common. And today it's I don't think there's an album that comes out that doesn't have some kind of sample on it anymore especially when you start looking at uh certainly not rap or hip-hop no definitely not right. um and when you start looking at even you know uh edm techno dance music a lot of times they will take just a single like a drum beat or uh you know a, a snare hit or whatever from something else and repeat it over and over and over to make their beats mm -hmm. and i think that it's super super important to modern music and it can still be open-hearted i almost feel like this was where the term sampling may have even originated yeah i don't think it was called that before might not have been i'm sure it was I, i've heard it called tape looping before this that's the beatles did yeah tape looping they called it tape stuff. looping right but uh that was the second reason um the third reason what there were three reasons there were three reasons actually uh third reason was because i kind of wanted to talk about uh forgiveness for past transgressions mm. um are you that, talking about perhaps no, go on. Oh, well, I was going to say, so this was, like we said, this was the Beastie Boys' first full-length album, uh, and they went on tour because of this album, and uh, they did a lot of stuff because of this album that we'll get into as we're talking about it or afterwards, that they later sort of regretted, and they later apologized for, and they later uh, have kind of backtracked on and said, hey, you know, we were kids, we were young, right. this wasn't appropriate, it's not okay, we're really sorry for it. And they've done stuff. I think this is the distinction here is they haven't just said that they've actually done things to try to repair those transgressions. They said, Hey, this is what we did. We're really sorry about it. Here's what we're going to try to do to make it better. And they've sense. done it with multiple things. It wasn't just like one, a one-off thing. Um, and like I said, we'll get to it a little bit when we start talking about the album, yeah. but uh, yeah. So licensed to ill. Yeah. So Beastie Boys, originally a punk band. Yeah. In the late 70s, early 80s, they were also a four piece at the time. Uh, drummer Kate Schellen, mm -hmm. Bach, rounded out the foursome. They uh, found a limited success with a song called Cookie Puss mm -hmm. that got some play on college radio. Um, and at the time, there was a particular student at New York University who was trying to get his fledgling label off the ground. One Rick Rubin. <laughs> of Def Jam. Um, he had heard Cookie Puss and signed them to his label, but only as a three piece. And they had drum, uh, they basically dumped drummer Kate. Yeah. Um, and he changed them from a punk group to a rap group. Mm -hmm. 
And it's kind of a weird, it's a weird transition. And I think you really hear it on this album because the tracks kind of flip-flop. There's one that's, uh, you'll go from one that's got a really like a rock and, and sort of punk heavy background to one that's very much what hip hop sounded like at the time. And then you'll flip back again. There's another kind of rock heavy song and then you flip back again and there's kind of a hip hop song. Mm -hmm. It's a very, um, uh, interesting transition and it's very much like, uh, when they kicked Schellenbach out of the band, it was really, they literally said in, they've said in interviews, it's because it didn't meet their new sort of macho, you know, bad boy image that they were trying to, to personify at the time. Mm, there's a word that doesn't get enough play anymore. What? Macho. Macho. Nobody says macho enough. Nobody says macho anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they ended up uh, releasing a couple singles in the summer of 86, running mm -hmm. up to the release, Rock Hard and She's On It. Um, and then they released Hold It Now, Hit It from this record right before the release. Mm -hmm. And Kyle, you kind of alluded to this, and I'm sure you were aware of what the original title of the record was supposed to be. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you want to do it or are you, uh, you go ahead. You want to do it. It's called it was originally called Don't Be a Faggot. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> Apparently, Rick Rubin suggested that title and uh, they went with it for a while and then kind of... Uh, whether they personally felt that it wasn't right or they realized that it wasn't going to be marketable well, uh, remains to be seen. But Columbia have... Records refused to release it under that yeah, title. Okay. Went to Russell Simmons and said, uh, change it. <laughs> so they did. Yeah. yeah and uh, Ad-Rock has apologized many times over yes. for this. But, you know, truth be told, it's a much different time than now. Yeah. It doesn't excuse it, but that's kind of the reality of, of the way it was back then. Like, I don't know how many eyebrows it would have raised yeah. had it been released. I mean, it probably wouldn't have got the play, but still. The bane of my existence, Rolling Stone, <laughs> is a huge fan of this record. Yes, they are. Which utterly confuses me because it's not something I saw them liking yeah. at any time. Especially at the time. Right, that's what I mean. Because it was so different. But this is, the, this is a, uh, a review from the magazine. Ooh. I have a little bit here. A statement so powerful, so fully realized that the Beastie Boys spent the rest of their careers living it down. Licensed to Ill created a new way for middle America to rock with thundering combination of hip hop beats, metal riffs and exuberant smart aleck rhymes. Even as it picked up the flag from Run DMC and delivered rap music irrevocably into the heartland, it would become hip hop's first number one album and one of the best selling rap albums of all time. Mike D, Ad-Rock, and MCA grew out of the record's frat boy sexual politics and party-hardy worldview, but head-smacking hits like You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party and Rhyming and Stealing, like the ACDC and Led Zeppelin songs that were the Beastie's early touchstones, keep getting discovered by new generations of Hellraisers. It's the definition of the debut album that takes over the world, the shock of the new, with an impact that extends for decades. Hmm. I'd say, by all accounts, that's as good a review as you're ever going to get from that magazine. Yeah. One of the things about this album is that a lot of people really misunderstood it. And it was because of Fight for Your Right to Party. A lot of people took this album to be, they took that at its face value. They said, oh, it's like a party song. It's this, you know, it's this rock song. It's an anthem for, you know, yeah, you got to fight against the man, you know, and party. And the BC Boys didn't write it that way. They didn't intend it to be that way. It's supposed to be satire about those type of songs and unfortunately it didn't come off that way and then when it didn't come off that way they kind of played into that and they're um on tour they kind of used that image that sort of frat boy image to as part of their tour they had a on the license to ill tour they had a now i have heard uh, uh different stories about how big this is it's anywhere from five foot to a 20 foot hydraulic penis mm -hmm. that was on stage with them. So the uh, Mike D has actually said that it was a five foot hydraulic penis that's still in storage somewhere in New Jersey. And they've been paying for it for like 35 <laughs> years to just be in a storage closet somewhere. Um, other news articles and things have said it's 10 feet, 20 feet tall. I tend to believe them. I tend to believe that it's like a five foot tall hydraulic penis, but they had that on stage with them and it would do stuff. They had girls in cages that were usually selected from the audience. They weren't like 
professional dancers. They were just girls that they brought up in cages on stage. <laughs> uh, they did all kinds of crazy stuff that got them, you know, in a lot of trouble. In 1992, which was uh, a few years after this came out, they were they went on tour for their next album, maybe the next next album. I forget which album it was now, but when they went to Washington State, they drew straws, and one of them had to do radio interviews and say, no, it's okay, parents, we're not going to do anything crazy. And one of them had to go and talk to the parents' council in the <laughs> state house and say, no, it's okay, look, our lyrics aren't that bad, everything's going to be all right. And one of them had to go on TV and do an interview. I forget which was which, but they had to go on TV and say, no, it's okay, look, we're, we're here to have fun, we're not going to cause an actual riot, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that they kind of played into that bad boy persona on the first album and the first tour because people misunderstood that it was supposed to be satire. People thought, okay, this is what they actually are. Let's roll with it. But they did it effectively for years and they didn't work that hard for a long time playing it down because I saw them in 93 on Lollapalooza tour Yeah, and they were still playing up the bad boy image and they were still just trashed all like <laughs> pretty much nonstop. Like well, we were sitting like, we had lawn seats and you could see into like behind the stage because the outdoor amphitheater and it was kind of spread out and you can see behind the stage and they were just hanging out by their tour bus and you could see just clouds of fucking hot smoke just <laughs> like, mm -hmm, uh-huh, uh-huh. So they didn't, you know, I don't know how much they played it down. I know they would eventually play it down much more going forward. And I think a lot of that probably was also, you know, if you have parents councils coming after you and your livelihood depends on performing, you'll probably say to them, hey, you know what? It's OK. We're not going to go. We're not going to go as crazy. We're not going to go. A lot of this is overblown. A lot of this is stuff that's not actually you know, going to be an issue. Of course, right. they're going to say that so you can keep playing. Of course. You want to track by track? This or? Yeah. Oh, we got to talk about the cover first. Go ahead. This is a super iconic cover. Well, the thing that makes me mad about this, too, is online. You only ever see the front of the cover now. Yep. Because of streaming services only using that little square. And to me, the whole cover, like the CD cover or the album cover, the gatefold, yeah. Exactly. It, that's so much more important. And it makes it a completely different image because the front is just the back of a Boeing 727. It was the Beastie Boys private jet that they used to fly mm -hmm. on. But then if you flip it over, the plane morphs into a joint that's crashing into the side of a mountain. Yeah. That's basically being put out on yeah. the mountain. Yeah. Uh, Rick Rubin actually came up with the idea for this when he was reading uh, the Led Zeppelin uh, biography, Hammer, Hammer of, the Gods. of the Gods. Yeah. It's, it is iconic. I think it's one of the most memorable, like hip hop covers, probably for sure of the 80s, probably of all time, because everybody has seen this cover. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't remember it, you've seen it. Or you've seen uh, interpolations of it because yes. uh, Eminem used it on Kamikaze. Mm -hmm. And several other people have used the imagery. The uh, album was featured in a book by Storm Thorgerson in Aubrey Powell of Hypnosis fame um, on the 100 best album covers of all time. Mm -hmm. So it has it does. It definitely has some cachet. Yes. In that particular world. And I am, a, as you know, an album cover wonk. So yeah. that is one of my favorites. Yes, I know. I do like using the word wonk. Wonk. Maybe. It's one of my. Uh, it was created by Stephen Byram and a guy or a person. I'm not sure. I couldn't find anything about this per person. World B. Omen. Don't know who that is. Ohms, excuse World me. B. Free was a basketball player, ah. um, but I don't know who the other person is. World B. World B. Omen. Ohms. Omen. Ohms. Ohms. I'm sorry. I, Ohms. I, I said Omen, but it's Ohms. Ohms like the, like, O-H-M-S? No, O-M-E-S. Oh, I see. So, yeah. Couldn't find a whole lot of information about that person. So, to, if they're out there up. listening to this podcast, get in touch. Wouldn't that be something? Right. World B. Um, That's just the letter B, by the way. Just not B. It's just B. I, fi I figured. So first track, Ryman and Stealing. Amazing opener for this. I mean, listen to this.
an opening to an album. It's a great start. Right. And this is such a throwback to their other, their earlier sort of punk rock roots. You know, it samples from uh, When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin, yep. uh, Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath, yep. and I Fought the Law by The Clash. And it really is. I, I feel like this is them saying, because this is the first track on the album, this is where we're coming from. Hmm. This is this is where we're coming from. And then we'll get into it in a second. I feel like the next song is them saying, this is where we're going. Interesting. Beastie Boys is Pirates. Beastie Boys is Pirates. whole thing is a lyrical adventure. The group is raiding pirates. Uh, because the rhymes are so good, you can forgive a little misplacement in the song because they refer to big biting suckers getting thrown in the moat, <laughs> which I think is a little more referential for castles and European stuff than pirates. Mm -hmm. But who really cares? <laughs> it's a nice welcome to the record kind of statement. Yeah. And you see there's a, um, be a recurring theme here with their references to Led Zeppelin. There are several. Yes. Throughout the record. And uh, this kind of tease it up. What's the next one? Next one is the new style, which literally the name itself, the new style. This is where we're going. Oh, you think that's a. Uh... I think I think the name is literally a reference to this is our new style. This is where we're going. You just heard what we used to be like. And now this is where we're headed. Hmm. This song samples uh, drop the bomb bomb drop the bomb by Trouble Funk. Uh, cool is back by Funk Incorporated. Peter Piper by Run DMC. 2-3 Break by the B-Boys. There's also an ACDC sample in there. Yes. And it's kind of, you know, talking about guns and misogyny and mm -hmm. all things associated therein. Talking about how much money they have. Talking about getting high. It's kind of all the ingredients that have become staples of that genre. Yeah. Like it or not. And it's kind of amazed me how sampling and eventually being sampled is so, mar so much uh, a part of the way that this music is recorded. Yeah. Besides the samples that you mentioned, this song itself has been sampled over 60 times through the years mm -hmm. by everyone from Lil Wayne to Busta Rhymes to Black Eyed Peas to Vanilla Ice. Yeah. And also by them, because they also sampled this song in Intergalactic. Yeah. So <laughs> they sample themselves a lot, it turns out, <laughs> which is pretty cool, awesome. It's a pretty cool thing. I'm curious to know if legally they have to pay themselves. <laughs> That's some sort of like, uh, weird circular. Yeah. Like we got to. Every time we sell this future Mike, track, we have to go. pay ourselves for the previous track, and then we have to use that track to pay other artists that we sampled. There probably is some sort of weird legalities there, but yeah. they probably do have to take it out and put it back in. Giggity. <laughs> and also, uh, in this song is a reference to Jimmy Page, mm -hmm. guitarist for Led Zeppelin again. Uh, they say, if I played guitar, I'd be Jimmy Page. The girls I like are underage. Which, of course, is referencing Jimmy Page's affair with a teenager back in the 1970s. <laughs> that uh, he had an affinity for the younger lady back then. So <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's the nicest way to put that I've ever heard. I was trying to be gentle. Thank you. Know? you. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> just lyrically great. It's just a great, it's a great song. It is. I enjoy it. But not as much as I enjoy the next song. She's crafty. This is one of my very favorite songs by the Beastie Boys ever. Really? Yes. And I'm sure it's in no small part due to the riff from the ocean. Yeah. Again, by Led Zeppelin. Seems to be a, a real uh, constant usage of that. And I also I also uh, totally just dig the beat for the song. And what's totally awesome about this particular exercise, this deep exploration of lyrics, is realizing what they really said in the lyrics. I think most albums back then, at least for me, I was just listening to stuff and not really digging any deeper than I needed to sing along. Um, certainly not in this genre. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of singing. It was just party music, really. So I knew the words, but not what they meant, nor did I care. <laughs> and now it's it's fun to hear it. <laughs> like I said uh, last episode that we recorded, every album needs a good song that mentions a blowjob. Yes. And this is it. This at is at one. least the first mention of one on the record, but I don't think it's the last. But the reference always, uh, it went right by me as a kid. You know, I didn't, the, the line is, the cab driver said he recognized my girly by the back of her head. He said a little <laughs> something about tip to base. I always heard that. And as a kid, as I heard, I heard as a bass, as a bass guitar, because I was yeah. so focused on music, not as the bass stick. <laughs> so, so there's so much wonderful lyrical interplay <laughs> and i'm not being sarcastic i think a lot of people probably take what i'm saying is 
like a sarcastic comment, but there's a lot going on in this song and that the lyrical interplay is just so cool. Yeah. Which I think is one of, you know, it was one of the, one of my favorite things about rap. I'm not a huge rap fan by any stretch of the imagination, but one of my favorite things about that genre is, is the lyrical interplay, how there's, there's external rhyming, like rhyming at the end of a line, like normal rock songs would, but then there's internal rhyming where they're rhyming within the verse, within the line, separate things that rock musicians and stuff like that. It's just, it's not utilized as frequently. Yeah. So, but anyway, by the end of the day, it's a song about a bit of a sexually active uh, girl named Lucy who robs the boys blind. Yeah. It's the best part of the song <laughs> is that she robs them completely blind. I, th- I By using her sexuality. What? Also yeah. digging a little deeper. There's a line in the song that says, uh, I spent my last dollar to buy a sabrette. A sabrette is a brand of hot dog sold from food vendor carts in New York City. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. I would have never known that before uh, researching this record. They talk about food uh, a it's lot. It's about food and booze. A lot. All the time. We'll get to that. But oh, yeah. that's, uh, But I love that song. I've oh, That's always been one of my favorite favorites on this record posse in effect posse in effect uh another pretty good song uh sampled uh catch a groove by juice uh peewee's dance by joski love mm-hmm. uh, and change the beat the female version by a band called beside don't know any of them did not know either any of them either so so i do the smurf the popeye and the jerry lewis i like <laughs> bullwinkle but not the brutus come on that's just a great line Cheaper than a hot dog with no mustard. <laughs> it's just a great line. Right? It's just a good old fashioned song about drinking, smoking chicks and pistols. Yeah. I was trying to figure out, and I wrote a note in here about around. Um, what is, uh, is there a name in hip hop where there's two or three or however many artists who go from one to the other and they sort of pass it along to one another? Oh. Because the only word that I could come up with was around. Like where you, you're singing a song. Kind of like you, row, row, row your boat. Exactly. That business. But with a round, you kind of sing over the top of one another. But with hip hop, you kind of pass it on to the next person. You sing a verse and then they sing a verse and then the next person sings a verse. And then it comes back to you or whatever. I have a feeling there's a term, but I don't know it. Yeah, I couldn't. And find if it. there isn't a term, you should come up with one. I should. A schnordblot. Well, I don't know. I'm not no, good at coming up with new no, words. Oh, I'll keep no. thinking. Yeah, that Schnordblap isn't. Schnordblap uh, is I think that's something one. else already. All right. Schnordblap. Schnordblap. That's a good song, though. But any song that mentions Abe Vigoda immediately <laughs> gets an A in my book. Like once you reference Abe Vigoda, once you reference Fish from Barney Miller, which I know I dated myself <laughs> right away. As soon as I said that, I've dated myself. Once, once you reference that, it's an A. So it's pretty much the only reason I ever watched Conan O'Brien was, or Dave Letterman, one of those two. No, I think it was David Letterman, that Abe Vigoda would just show up every once in a while, <laughs> like on an episode of David Letterman. I think it was David Letterman. Yeah. Just, huh. Look, Abe Vigoda. Like, just cool. Shuffling out. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Abe Vigoda. Good tune. Slow Ride, named after the Fog Hat song. But not the Fog Hat song. But it's not at all the Fog Hat song because it samples uh, Lowrider by War. It's probably the most prominent one in this. What does that sound like? Uh, it sounds like this. Classic, classic, you know, rock song, completely, uh, completely sampled and, and changed to make it a completely different sounding song. Uh, another song about guns and drinking and smoking. Right. Seems to be a recurring theme on the record. You know what else is a recurring theme? What? White Castle. Oh, I love White me Castle. some White Castle. White Castle is mentioned five times on this album. As it should be on almost every 
album. I would agree. There's actually a, a really great article that I'll uh, put a link in the show notes to where they interviewed the, the president of White Castle. Oh, it's been 10 or 12 years ago now. But uh, they interviewed him to talk about his connection, the company's connection to the Beastie Boys and whether or not they had ever reached out and said, like, hey, you know, they mention you a lot. Are you guys giving them free White Castle? Are you doing anything? And it's it's a fascinating article into how like corporate tie ins work. <laughs> Are they getting anything for free? Uh, it doesn't sound like it because mm. they're pretty uh, they're pretty against uh, corporate sponsorship sponsorship. Who's BC Boys? Yeah. You know, who's not against corporate sponsorships? Audio Judo, because <laughs> if I could get a White Castle sponsorship and uh, I had two White Castles for lunch today Ooh. before we recorded. Heather buys the uh, frozen White Castles, and they are delicious. Oh, yeah, they are. Right? They're not at all kangaroo meat. <laughs> Which is, uh, that was always the, uh, the, just an aside, that was always the uh, the the rumor. That they were kangaroo meat. When I was a kid, like growing up in the Midwest, it was that they were kangaroo meat. But, you know, <laughs> anything with like a hamburger with a hole in it, a couple of pickles, Ooh. some some grilled onion. And a slice of cheese right over there. Just, you know, grab a sack good. of White that Castle. so good right now. So good. Uh, anyway, um, the beats. I love the beats on the songs. Yeah. Besides the uh, the lowrider stuff. Seems like uh, one of them also got into a bit of trouble at school, if you listen to the lyrics. But he seems unaffected uh, by how much trouble he's in. Yeah. I also noticed that that much like the rest of us at this particular age, they don't seem to have any brand loyalty. In this song, he is drinking a Miller, mm-hmm. a Budweiser, mm-hmm. and Heineken, and he's also been drinking Old Crow, which is pretty disgusting in his own, his own right. It's disgusting. <laughs> but like us, you know, I was satisfied with Old Crow back then. Or Take what you can get. Old Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. Paps Blue Ribbon or other shitty beers like that. Or Bush Light. Ugh. Anything to catch a buzz. Michel- but maybe not. Michelob old- Ultra. Maybe. Well, it's nothing wrong with that. Maybe not uh, Old Crow, but whatever. Also, there's a line in the song that he refers to, uh, went to the bathroom and rolled me up a Wooler. Uh, Wooler <laughs> is a joint that has been laced with crack or other, some other substance. Oh, good Lord. So that sounds not so good. See, Wooler sounds fun. But then when you're like, yeah, it's a <laughs> joint laced with crack. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. They just took that next level. <laughs> a Wooler. 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 I'm guessing that the next song mm-hmm. is Kyle's favorite song. Oh, Yes, it certainly is. I figured. Uh, Girls! It's Kyle's favorite song. Girls! What does it sound like? It sounds like this. I hope she'll say... That was my response to so many questions in uh, in high school. <laughs> I lost track and people started to get mad at me. Hmm. Where's it? Where's she at? Jack and Mike D to my dismay. <laughs> what? She's people didn't like. She's it? over there. No, people did not like it. When you burn something into the ground so hard that uh, nothing will ever grow there again. Mm, kind of beating a dead horse, so to speak. Pretty much, yeah. So. This song is a huge, huge favorite for crowds. Yes. As evidenced by the fact that every time I hear it, I hear everyone singing along to it. Mm-hmm. But they were not particularly proud of it. No. Nor proud of its popularity and how people didn't realize that this was the parody and the satire. Yes. According to Rick Rubin, he and Ad Rock wrote the song on a train ride back from D.C., they wrote it to the rhythm of the Isley Brothers song Shout, which you can obviously hear in there. Mm-hmm. And they just wrote uh, really offensive, stupid lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> and as a testament to them not liking this so much, they only ever performed this song live one time. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it really is like. For some reason, this song became super memorable on here. I remember this was the first Beastie Boys song I ever heard. And I didn't I didn't know it was the Beastie Boys at the time, but I remember hearing it and being like, oh, that's kind of fun, you know? And then later on, I was like, 
Oh no! If you actually listen to that song, it's kind of shitty. Actually, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of real shitty to women. I was like, man, the Beastie Boys suck. They're real shitty to women. And then you have to kind of like look even deeper, and you're like, oh, no, not really. They've kind of started to to apologize and and make amends for that kind of shit. <laughs> but, interview Ad Rock uh, gave in 1994. Mm-hmm. He said. Uh, we get a lot of shit for things that were done at those times, and in a lot of ways, I think rightfully so. It's really scary when you do something as a goof that then four million people take for real. Girls to do the dishes? Cool. Dude, <laughs> no, that really wasn't the idea. So, you know, they take a lot of crap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yet, the song would be sampled by Easy e mm-hmm. NWA, Public Enemy, Ice Cube, Eminem. So it gets very difficult to disown something that does that well. Yeah. And the reputation, whether deserved or not, is difficult to shed. Yeah. As they encountered for many, many years. Yeah, it's a it's a troubling song. It it really is. Like <laughs> and it's what sucks too is it's so much fun and it's like you said, they play it in they pl- play it to rile up crowds because it's up tempo and it's fast and everybody recognizes the lyrics. Are you and, listening to the lyrics? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, don't please don't do this. We're going to play it at the ball game. One of my favorite stories, though, uh, this song went quiet for several years, right? You know, I mean, it's kind of stayed underneath the consciousness of society, but it wasn't really popular or anything. And then in 2013, a company called Goldie Blocks, which is a, a company who they actively create toys and educational things for to get girls into STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. They're a pretty good company. They make some really cool toys. They took this song and they made a commercial with a huge roll Rube Goldberg machine that these three little girls had built that, uh, you know, has all these fun little elements to it. And they took a lot of very girly, you know, pink and frilly toys that are aimed at girls and reappropriated them to be uh, uh, pieces in this Rube Goldberg machine. And then they took it and they remade, they remixed this song, or they covered this song. They claim it's a parody. Um, that it has very empowering lyrics for young women. Oh, like uh, I, I should have written more of them down. But uh, like, there's a part where they say, you know, girls are going to develop the next rocket and the next app. Uh, and it's it's a very empowering version of this song. And unfortunately, it had a lot of issues. So apparently, the Beastie Boys. This was after. Uh, uh, Yauch had died mm-hmm. and in his will he had specifically said I don't want our music used for any commercial purposes Correct. now in the US there's no legal standing for that will to prevent that from happening it's just a request in other countries there are but not in the US but anyways they um, the Beastie Boys had their lawyers send Goldie Blocks a letter now this is there's so much confusion about this and I'm going to try to do my best to keep this clear mm-hmm. The Beastie Boys had their lawyers send Goldie Blocks a letter that said, hey, look, we're curious to know why you chose to use this song without our permission, why you chose to do it the way that you did it, uh, and and why you didn't come to us first and try to get some type of clearance or permission before you did this. Goldie Blocks claimed uh, that it was a parody song because they had had re-recorded the instrumentals, uh, so it was not sampled or copied or anything from the beastie boys and they had rewritten the lyrics in a way that could be considered parody and in order to protect themselves they immediately sued the beastie boys within like two days of getting the letter they had their lawyers filing a lawsuit against the beastie boys saying you can't come after us for mm. this. now from a corporate standpoint that's probably the right thing to do from a pr standpoint that blew up in their face Absolutely. because immediately all these people were like, whoa, wait a minute. The Beastie Boys just sent you a letter. They didn't sue you or anything. And then you countersued them trying to say, we can do this. Screw you. We're going to sue you. So it kind of uh, floated around and every couple of weeks on the internet, you'd see something new about it. That lawsuit was settled. And immediately afterwards, the Beastie Boys sued Goldie Blocks. And they said, look, you did infringe on our copyright because you didn't you know, you didn't change it enough. Right. You didn't modify it enough without our perm- and you used it without our permission. So what ended up happening was they settled out of court when Goldie Blocks published a, a letter that basically said, look, we did this because we're fans and we felt like it was a great chance to take something that you have admitted was sexist and misogynist and not who you are today. Right. 
And we took that and we reappropriated it in a positive light. Now we're, you know, not okay with what's happening right now. So we're going to change the song in the commercial and keep using the, the visuals for the commercial and not your music. And they ended up sitting down and the settlement that they reached was that Goldie Blocks would pay a million dollars to the charity of the Beastie Boys choice. And they picked a charity that encourages young women to go into STEM fields. Okay. So all in all, ended up very positive. It's a good happy ending, yeah. Yes. But super negative for both parties involved Definitely. while it was happening. But when was that? I seem to remember. 2013 is when the commercial uh, okay, came so out, was... and 26, late 2016 was when they settled. Okay. So three or four years there. Yeah, I seem to remember something about that, like around that time. Yeah. I uh, just, yeah. every time I hear this song now, though, I think about that commercial because I'm like, it's a fun commercial and it's, it is not on YouTube with the Beastie Boys track in it, but you can find it on the internet if you go look for it. Hmm. Um, Technically, you know, because they took it down, you can't find it anywhere, but it is still out there. So if you want to go watch it, but Kyle can find it. Anybody can find it. It's just a, it's just YouTube immediately takes it down because of their automated copyright protection thing. But whatever. Thought I should bring that up while we're talking about girls, though, because it is kind of an important, like you said, they made the song, then they kind of regretted it and they didn't play it or they didn't do anything for years. And then all of a sudden it jumped out. And do you hear that, Randy? Make a note of that. Kyle just said, we're talking about girls. Make sure we have a note of that. We'll just pull that <laughs> clip out at one point. And just, Kyle talking about girls. <laughs> it happens occasionally. <laughs> What's the next song? The next song is probably one of the Beastie Boys' most famous songs. Now, yeah, you're, what, what you've set aside, that this record was probably mostly parody, mm-hmm. which I get. This is the end-all, be-all of party it is. anthems. It's the prototype <laughs> of party anthems. For everything that would come after it. You gotta fight for your right to party. You gotta fight. So good. Right. And that guitar solo, Carrie King from Slayer. From Slayer. He was working on an album with Rick Rubin and he was like, you know, I kind of feel like this needs a, some, or brought him over to play guitar on this and a, another track that we'll get to in a second. Mm-hmm. Such a, just like a rip right there in the middle. Just. Yeah. They were recording rain and blood and yeah. Nearby said, Hey, come play on this. Oh, okay. This, so this is the one though. This is the track that I think that, they completely made it as a satire of jock rock party songs. And even so Mike D said, uh, we might've reinforced uh, certain values of some people in our audience uh, when our own values were really actually totally different. Uh, There were tons of guys singing along to fight for your right who were oblivious to the fact that it was a total goof on them. Yeah. (laughs) But it was the party. Oh yeah. Party anthem. And proof that they never wanted to be taken at face value. Again, the last time they played it live was 1987. <laughs> Same year it was released. So there's, I mean, there you go. So I looked it up. Right? So there's 52 weeks, obviously, in mm-hmm. 1987. Yet there were only eight number one albums for the whole year. This, License to Ill, was obviously one of them. Mm-hmm. The others were Bruce Springsteen Live, 1975 to 85, which is a weird I don't get that. Hmm. Uh, Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. Joshua Tree by U2. Whitney by Whitney Houston. I guess. I guess it's by Whitney Houston. I don't know. Uh, La Bamba by Los Lobos and the adjoining soundtrack. Uh, Bad by some... Who was that by again? I, my, Mikhail, Mikhail Jackson. Ah, right. A Tunnel of Love by Bruce Springsteen again. Hmm. And the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Oh, of course. Now... 
Only one of those records were you demanding be played at every single party you went to. <laughs> and it wasn't Whitney Houston. It was this one. And a lot, lot of it rested on this song. So I got a story. Oh, goody. Right. So this was 19. It's a little bit later. So this would have been 1988, March 1988. I'm playing in uh, a band and we're getting ready to play in a battle of the bands at my high school. So a couple of bands set up in the gymnasium and we're, we put together a, a good set. So it's basically an audition for what band gets chosen to actually play at the dance. That's a couple of weeks later. Okay. So there's limited amounts of people, but many judges, not a lot of fans as it were, not a lot of students, but more judges and judges are kind of pulled from some select groups of the school. So we put together this great set of what I think is going to be great, you know, put in Van Halen, put in, you know, stuff that people want to hear. It's, and we're tight, sound really, really good. We blast through 15 minutes set and I'm thinking, okay, we got this hands down. I was getting ready to go to see Rush later that night. I was feeling good. And like, this is good. This is a good night. It's a good Friday. And another uh, friend of ours uh, who's in another band who eventually he and I would join forces and create a different band based on the backs of what I saw within the next few minutes. So so they're they they're set up and I'm like, oh, we gotta watch uh we gotta watch Dan's band play. And we're like, okay, cool. And uh they came out and the first thing they did was this song and nailed it to the wall. And within 30 seconds of them starting, I started packing up my gear. I'm like, <laughs> we've just lost. And they're like, why? No, we played great. It doesn't matter how good we play anymore. This just won everything because he went to the he went to the base level party anthem to get every kid riled up. And if they play that, we're done. We're done. <laughs> just start packing up your shit because it's over. And it was. It was. And they not only I mean, they played it to perfection. And I'm like, OK. And it was based on that that I went up to him and said, "We need, we need to put the two bands together and start playing gigs." And that's what that's how we started getting gigs throughout the city. Is oh, that cool. we, were, we were way better together than we were separate. But it was all on the backs of uh, this song because that's exactly what it did. Every kid had MTV. Every kid grew up at that at that age, seeing this video three four times a day. And just being like, oh, my God, that's awesome. And listen, and that's exactly what he played right into it. I'm like, done, done. So good. Dan, if you're listening, it was still a great choice. I do have to say, though, I feel like had they played I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston instead, I feel like you'd be in the same place. It's you a think? bang. It's a banger. <laughs> I mean, it really, that's true. Or uh, so emotional. I could have, we could have blasted that one out. Or. Something from Dirty Dancing probably would have worked oh, too. Oh yeah, that would have worked great. Or Tunnel of Love, but those <laughs> huge Bruce Springsteen fans <laughs> that are 15 years old back then. <laughs> Yikes! No sleep till Brooklyn. No sleep till, till Brooklyn? Brooklyn. That's another one of my favorite Beastie Boys. Yeah, songs. Great metal riff blasting through. Sample of TNT by ACDC. Mm -hmm. uh, guitar solo, which seems remarkably out of place in the song. Right. Is again provided by Carrie King. Yep. It's named after uh, the title is a play on Motorhead's uh, No Sleep Till Hammersmith. Such Classic a, Motorhead album, oh, right. by the way. It's so good. I think the Beastie Boys have probably written a song referencing every single of the five boroughs in New York, but I still think this is probably the most iconic one. Mm -hmm. And it is such a, like a, it's such a great, it's a story song, first of all. It's about them talking about being out on tour and how it's such a slog and you have to work so hard. But they're still not going to rest until they get home to Brooklyn. But it's a parody of glam rock and arena rock stars yeah. of the day, which is doing the same thing, which is great because then you throw in the title as a you know riff on No Sleep Till Hammersmith. Yeah. And it's uh, it's great. There's a lot of metal in this one, which is probably why I love this song as much as I do. Yeah. Is that heavily into the metal aspect of it. Is there a song? Do we have a song? I, I do not have a clip of this. I don't one. have a clip. Of I this should one. have gotten a clip of No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Sorry. Take your finger off that button, Randy. Don't you? Don't so you do excited. it? I don't think there's a, a clip until the end here, Randy. The last track. I'm sorry. You can you can take a breather. You can take five. Get another beer. On the next Social song, legs. I'm surprised that you didn't have Paul Revere. Right. I thought about it. Woo! 
the 808 drum machine with the backwards Great. beat. It's genius. It is. It's absolutely genius. The and lyrics are fairly in- inconsequential. Yeah. I mean, literally, and they were playing around in the studio, too, and MCA was like, hey, what if we record this 808 drum machine on a tape and then play the tape backwards? And they were just like, well, let's try it. And, you know, everybody has said it's this absolute genius level you know, thing. He could hear it already. He already knew what it was going to sound like. He had to do it to prove it to everybody else. So uh, Mike D tells a story, said that backwards 808. If I think right, it was actually Joe or Run from Run DMC. It was his idea to flip the tape up. Really? He was there like, hey, y'all should flip the tape around so that shit's backwards. Either that or we had it on backward and he heard it and he bugged out. And that's when he said, y'all have to do a story rhyme over that shit. (laughs) <laughs> and he came in and started writing the shit with us. Either way, whoever is responsible for it <laughs> is one of the most important innovations in the history of modern, like modern rap, for sure. Yeah. That backwards beat sound. And that, yeah, the, the name Paul Revere has nothing to do with the colonial hero of the same name. No, it but was. But it is the name of. Uh, it was the name of the horse. Adrock's horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in case you don't know, in case you've never heard this song, it's a fictitious story about how the Beastie Boys met. Uh, set sort of in the old west, I guess you would say, because yeah. they're they're supposed to be gunslingers basically, and bank robbers. But it doesn't matter. The story no. of the song is the drum beat, right? That is the story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that Paul, is funny. Paul Revere the horse. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Paul Revere the horse. <laughs> what? That's from a play too, isn't it? What? I can't. The name of somebody with the a horse named Paul Revere. Uh, I should have made a note about that. Oh, I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. Somebody knows. Somebody out there knows. Chris, you're listening. You know. Yeah. Let us know. Hold it now. Hit it. This has so many freaking samples in it. Yeah. Riddled with them. Take Me to Mardi Gras by Bob James. Funky Stuff by Cool and the Gang. The Return of Leroy Part One by the Jimmy Castor Bunch. Lottie Dottie uh, by Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. Uh, Christmas Rappin' by Curtis Blow. Drop the Bomb by Trouble Funk. Let's Get Small by Trouble Funk. Uh, Time to Get Ill by the Beastie Boys. That's right. They sampled a song that you haven't heard yet if you're listening to this album from uh-huh. begin to, beginning to end. Lottie Dadi is, is, uh, was the first rap group I ever listened to was Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh Crew. Ooh. That was the, uh, that was the first rap album that I actually had, and that was on there. You know, they don't cause trouble, and they don't <laughs> hurt nobody. I just want you to know that. Uh, it's just uh, the typical life in the typical day in the life of the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Guns, drugs, chicks, and eating fast food. It's weird to me, though, that this is the first single from this album. It's an odd choice. Like, that seems like a weird choice to me, but I guess it really does exemplify like, hey, we're not doing punk and rock anymore. We're doing hip hop and uh, rapping now. So. Which, yes, they are doing. Uh, oh, yeah. They moved up. They moved up from Old Crow mm-hmm. and are now drinking uh, Thunderbird. Ooh. So that's a step up. What's the word? Or over. I believe Thunderbird is the word. And what's the price? 40 twice. <laughs> that is, <laughs> nobody listening is going to get that reference. That Oh, no, I'm not even going to. Okay. If you understand what I'm referencing, let me rephrase that. If you understand the person that I'm referencing, and then you understand the commercial that that person is referencing, email me. Kyle at audiojudo.com and let me know. I think Kyle just went meta. I will give you, I will give you some kind of a prize, a t-shirt or something. Ooh, a t-shirt. Yeah. If you can tell me the logical steps of taking a t-shirt. It is an audio judo t-shirt. Once we have them, I will send one for free to somebody. Yeah, you should. Because of that. Now you have to know the person and the thing, the media that I'm referencing, and then the person and media that they're referencing. Can you repeat the, the quote one more time, please? What's the word? Thunderbird, what's the price? 40 twice. <laughs> All right. Good luck out there, everybody. Everybody's and, researching. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you can look it up, but if you can do it without looking it up, that would yeah, be. Yeah, don't look it up or look it up, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Brass Monkey. That funky monkey? Brass Monkey. It's a drink. I didn't know that until I was doing research for this. Yeah. It's, had, uh, it's referenced a few times throughout the record. Yeah. And finally, we get a whole song devoted to it. Right. It is, of is, of course, named after the homemade, at the time, alcoholic drink of the same name. Hmm. And here's how you make it. Ooh, Matthew's got the recipe. 
Name of the song Brass Monkey usually refers to the cocktail that consists of equal oh, here we go. Equal parts of beer and orange juice and a mixture of gin, triple sec, tequila, sour mix, grapefruit juice, or a mixture of rum, vodka, and orange juice with or without Galliano. So it doesn't sound like the best you you lost me when you mixed beer and orange juice. Yeah. That's not a look I want to see coming back the other way. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> How difficult is it to clean vomit out of a microphone just in case? <laughs> you got it all in the little, you got it all in there. It, take it out of the pop filter here. Is pro- <laughs> but you did say, you said or. Or. So there's a second recipe for it. Yes. Which sounded a lot better. It was rum and what? Rum, vodka, and orange juice with or without Galliano, which is like a liqueur. That sounds considerably more palatable or to me. gin triple sec tequila orange juice sour and grapefruit juice why do you need sour and, and grapefruit, grapefruit juice i feel like one is going to take care of that but you know it's a good song apparently dave matthews did a cover of this back yeah. in 1997 and it's pretty good actually i haven't heard it they strung it between too much and ants marching i'm gonna see if i can dig it up because i hear it's uh i hear from kyle that it's pretty good producer randy says that's uh, pretty close to a harvey Wallbanger. Is it really? Hmm. 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 Those were popular in the early 80s. The Harvey Wallbanger. Slow and Low. Uh, Samples Eighth Wonder by Sugar Hill Gang and uh, Flick of the Switch by ACDC. Sugar Hill Gang, the original Godfathers of Rap. Uh, And this is a cover. Yeah. Originally recorded by Rum DMC. I see. I see. I got Brass Monkey on the brain. It's not Rum DMC. <laughs> it's Run DMC. Although that would be a great cover band. They just uh, take a shot before they do every set. <laughs> Rum DMC. Rum DMC. Every every song's about a different type of alcohol. I could get down on something like that. That sounds like a good thing to listen to. Slow and low. Slow and low. This is such a. It's a, an interesting song. It's got a funky tempo to it. It's got. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a. Another like hip hop round song for bat for lack of a better way to describe it. And it's a it's a good example of uh, what they would do in the future, too. Again, I like it. Do you like the next song more? Uh, what, What time would that be? I believe it's time to get ill. Ah, what's the time, Randy? Time to get ill. There we go. Last song on this album is time to get ill. What's that time? It's time to get ill. This song, not only do I think it's a great wrap up for this album because they take a bunch of samples that they used in other places on the album and use them here again. I think that it's a like a call to arms almost Mm -hmm. to like this is the song where they're saying to other hip hop artists, this is what we can do now do something better Mm. because that was kind of the game that hip hop artists were playing in the in the 80s. They were saying each other up. Exactly. We can do this. Now go beat it, and then we'll take what you did and make it even better. Uh, samples include uh, I'm Going to Love You Just a Little More, Baby by Barry White, which Barry. we heard right there. Uh, Down to the Corner by CCR, Custard Pie by Led Zeppelin, I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, Nothing from Nothing by Billy Preston, Gucci Time by Schooly D, Mr. Ed by Jay Livingston, Take the Money and Run by Steve Miller Band, Flick of the Switch by ACDC, Green Acres by Vic Mizzy, Eddie Albert, and Eva Gabor, Rocket in the Pocket, the live version by Sharon, The Party Scene by the Russell Brothers, Funky Stuff by Cool and the Gang, and Jam on the Groove by Ralph McDonald. Uh, there was also another one, uh, Boogie on Reggae Woman Ooh. by Stevie Wonder was also there in there. Go. That is another thing that I found super difficult in researching this album. What's that? Every single source that I would find, it's like, hey, here's all the samples that were used. You'd then go to the next one and it would be missing like three of them. Yeah. And you're like, oh, were those in there? But they'd have another one that you're like, oh, where was that? Well, it's clear they can't identify them all. Yeah, right? <laughs> they do their best and someone's like, well, I heard this one. And I think that's, uh, yeah, you just pull out all the stops on the closer. Yeah. Really just ramp it up to 11. And that's exactly what they did. More references to uh, 
brass monkey on this mm-hmm. and Shivis. Lots of Shivis. Shivis. And plenty of references to classic rock, which I uh, did a little research on that. That all comes from Rick Rubin. So they were unfamiliar with almost all of that. Really? Type of music Because they were punk guys. They didn't know any of that classic stuff. Rick Rubin brought that all to the table. Interesting. Which I love. Either way, I love how they, they interpolate verses. They use recreations of verses from classic rock songs that the Stones recorded and just twist them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And use them in their lyrics. But that again, like I said, the lyrical phrasing has always been what what's really interesting to me about rap music. So definitely a good one. Yeah. And I definitely think, like I said, this is kind of a, a call to arms to other hip hop artists to say, look, this is what we can do. One up us so that then we can try to one up you. But I think that it really sinks that home because the end of the song, it fades out and then it comes back with this drum beat that is totally plain. It has no singing over it. It has nothing over it. Right. And it's a perfect sample. It's just this drum beat that comes back out of nowhere. And you're like, why the hell is that there? And then once you realize, oh, they put that there so other people can hear it, sample it very easily, and then take it and build off of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I honestly oh. think that that's why that's there. I couldn't find anybody that straight out said that, but that's why I think it's there. I think it's there so that other people can get a nice clean sample from it and then build off of it. That's a great idea. Yeah. So that's that's uh that's, that's it. it. That's don't be a faggot. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh licensed to ill. That but, is uh, uh I do want to wrap it up a little bit though, because I, I yeah, did say, ahead. you know, we're gonna talk about uh, forgiveness and retribution for whether or not artists can actually be and should be forgiven for their past discretions. Because mm-hmm. we kind of live today, we live in this sort of instant cancel culture. Where, you know, an artist will, they, since they're so connected to everybody through social media, you know, they might say something or do something that they're like, immediately they regret it, but it's now out there and everyone in the world saw it at the same time. And they have no way to cancel that because at least, you know, in the late eighties, when, you know, the BC boys were doing this, they had the luxury, I guess, of time. Because mm-hmm. when they did or said something, it took time for it to to move its way outward, for people to hear it, for things to happen, and for them to be able to grow and mature and understand, oh, maybe that wasn't a great idea. Uh, you know, we should probably figure out how we can undo that, how we can apologize for that, how we can make it better. Right. Um, like we said, the original name of this album was going to be Don't Be a Faggot. Uh, in a letter to Time Out uh, magazine. Uh, Time Out New York magazine uh, in December 1999, Ad Rock wrote, uh, I would like to formally apologize to the entire gay and lesbian community for the shitty and ignorant things we said on our first record. Uh, There are no excuses, but time has healed our stupidity. We hope that you will accept this long overdue apology. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very interesting. I can't think of a lot of artists today that would have that eloquence to be able to actually sit down and write something themselves. And even when they do, they wouldn't write it like that. They would write a tweet that's like, hey, sorry about that. I deleted the earlier tweet. Right. You know, or there'd be a Facebook post or an Instagram story. And it's like, I think that it's it's more important that they grew and realized it than it is to get the apology out there as quick as possible. But uh, as far as like uh, misogyny and sexism go as well, there's a book that just came out a couple of years ago called Beastie Boy Book mm-hmm. um, that is uh, all the stories of them. Uh, from the beginning, basically, it's a bunch of short stories and they got other people to come in and write, you know, outsider uh, Schellenbach. I can't. What is her first name? Kate. Kate Schellenbach. Thank you. She wrote a chapter in there about what happened to her while she was with the Beastie Boys and why she got kicked out and how, you know, she's OK with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I guess she's OK with it. Um, it has a really cool intro by Amy Poehler, which I would not think, you know, oh, the Beastie Boys book is going to be introduced by Amy Poehler. Mm-hmm. But it's very cool, and she talks a lot about how they've grown and how they've they've changed, and how she, as a fan, a longtime fan, had to deal with the sexism in the early days, and then kind of grew herself and said, you know, hey, they were sexist, and now they've they've matured. But uh, I would hope after a career of spanning thirty four years, you you would be able to correct the wrongs exactly that you made it when times were different, when things weren't necessarily 
they weren't right, but they weren't frowned upon as yeah. openly as they are now. And I, I think the best indicator of that is they realized early on that, hey, our critics are saying this is bad. Our fans are saying this is bad. We need to do something about it. Right. But like I said, it takes it takes the time years to, to shed that reputation. Yeah. Because people just think of, oh, it's Beastie Boys it's party band. MCA had the lyrics in Sure Shot in 1994. Uh, I want to say a little something that's long overdue. The disrespect to women has got to be through. To all the mothers and the sisters and the wives and the friends, I want to offer my love and my respect to the end. There you go. Said it right there. Right? 1994. So uh, I'm curious to know how other people feel about this, though. So do you think that an artist can heal wounds that they've opened up like this? Do you think that they can make things better? Do you think that it depends on what they actually did? Uh, if they if there were just words, do you think that that's different than if there were words and actions? So I want to know what you guys think. So uh, please get in touch with us. Info at audiojudo.com is probably the best way to get in touch mm -hmm. with us. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo. Uh, Twitter uh, at audiojudo. Instagram at audiojudo. Um, you can send us a carrier pigeon if you want. Mm. Just write audiojudo on the letter and it'll eventually get to it'll us. It'll get to us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, last week, uh, just to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, last week, we had our release uh, of an episode with our interview with uh, legendary vocalist Fish. Um, I wasn't expecting a huge response in the States because he just isn't as well known here. But I was expecting quite the bump in Europe, and we got it big time. So mm. I'd like to say hello. Hello. Welcome to new listeners in Ukraine, Argentina, Belarus, Finland, India, Indonesia, Croatia. Serbia, Malta, Luxembourg, and Bulgaria. Wow. So thank you so much, and we hope you will continue to listen. Uh, throw you some progressive rock stuff later in the year. <laughs> but we are glad that you're on board and uh, that you took the time to listen. Yes, so, welcome. So like all the things that Kyle said, info at audiojuda.com and all the social media, you can get a hold of us at any of those uh, particular uh, and, routes. And please do, and let us know uh, if you like what we're doing, if you hate what we're doing, uh, or if you want us to go in a particular direction, yeah. send us a send us a quick message. We'll, we'll try to get there. Yep, and we appreciate you hanging out, and have a good couple weeks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Good night. What's the next song? We got to get through this. I got to pee. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.